listen very, very carefully. The gentleman posed a question. Will you answer the gentleman's question? You've got to challenge. You've got to rock the damn boat. I'm ready if you are. I showed it being an artist. I have the soul of an artist, the temperament of an artist, the intellect of an artist. That's a good idea. All right, doctor, tell us the truth. And so... Truth and Soul Incorporated, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode four from the Truth and Soul Incorporated podcast, where we look at some of the figures who made New Zealand advertising what it is today, uh, for better or worse. Uh, today we talk to Jill Brinston, who I suspect may well have been the first female creative director in New Zealand advertising. Jill worked at Saatchi's way back when, as well as Mojo, Ogilvy, and what was Ted Bates, I believe. She talks about how an innocent girl from Invercargill came to be running two of her own agencies, currently Radiation and Tricky. Two agencies seem a bit greedy, but we'll let that go. We'll also hear how she came to be running uh, an international oil business and what happens when you have a tug of war between a giant truck and a tug on a Californian pier. So uh, today I am talking to Jill Brinsden, uh, who has a couple of agencies at the moment, or yeah, a couple of agencies. Uh, and of, of particular interest is that Jill was, I believe, and we'll shortly find out whether or not that's any element of truth in that, the first female um, creative director in New Zealand. I, th- I've certainly been given that title. I I remember from those days there were plenty, not plenty. That's a complete lie. Mm. A few other women, two in yeah. smaller agencies. Yeah. So, but I was the first one that stepped up. It was Ogilvy where I first got the title. Yeah. And it was a super big deal that it was a chick, as you can imagine. So how did that? How did it come about? How did you end up in advertising in the first place? Uh, the only thing I was good at was English at school. Yeah. And I was exceptionally good at that speech writing, debating, writing essays, knew how to hold a room. Yeah. Crap at everything else. Yeah. Not crap, but just had to work really hard to get 62%. So it was always going to be English. Left school with my finger, literally my middle finger in the year, walked past the science lab three months before the end of the seventh form. Which school was that? Or do we- that was in Invercargill. Ah, Invercargill. Southern girl. Okay, I didn't know that. I have... I have- been there and I've been yeah. to Stuart Island and my um, my second dog is from Invercargill so there's a strong connection there. <laughs> I'm happy I grew up in Invercargill. I was embarrassed when I was 18 and I left but mm. um, I, you know, I'm really happy that I'm a southern girl. It's made me, we're good strong girls. So <clears throat> the best job that was in Invercargill was at uh, 4ZA. I thought the radio station would be a cool place to work. Yeah. So I rocked up and they uh, interviewed me and they gave me a copy test, which was like three hours long. And I loved it because all I had to do was come up with ideas. It seemed like a miracle to me that there was even such a, just come up with ideas. Such and a thing, yeah. I thought, I just couldn't believe there was such a thing. Um, got I got, it was the last year Radio New Zealand had broadcasting cadets. And so I was made a cadet, which was super cool because that meant you got a couple of months in every single department. And um, <clears throat> I look back and I was so goddamn oblivious. Didn't have a clue. Just thought, this is amazing. I'm getting money. So you, you weren't aware kind of how lucky you were to, no, to, to no concept. be, no concept. Uh, be at, working at a radio station with no experience, no nothing. No, uh, yeah. no. Well, I was a cadet, so they were, gonna, they were looking for a baby. Yeah. So I was the baby. And then um, got into the copy department, really liked promotions, really liked doing all sorts of other things. Got into the copy department and I won an award, like within the first, within three months. Hmm. Again, oblivious, like, oh, what? What? What happened? Went yeah. up to Wellington, still didn't really know what that was about. Like, seriously. And an advertising really? award or a radio Yeah, award. radio advertising award. Yeah. For, um, and then I was singing my own jingles and I was yeah. voicing my own ads and I just thought it was amazing. I was an actor, you know, at the time as well. So, <clears throat> I was I was there for eighteen months, and then I thought I have to leave. So I went to Wellington and got a transfer to Two ZM, and that was fantastic. And then I realised that that radio wasn't you know where it was going to be, so I needed to get a job in a proper advertising agency. What? Because you thought radio was limiting. Yeah, and and, and again, reasonably oblivious. Just thought, oh, looks like I've got a career. Hmm. I should branch out now. I'd like to do TV ads. I didn't even know what that meant. I want to yeah. do TV ads. 
So I took my radio reel around all the agencies and... <clears throat> in Wellie. In Wellington, yeah. yeah. And I got a job at Mackay King, which at the time was the agency. The so Terry King. Yep, I, Terry King I, hired Matt. me. Yeah. Terry King hired me twice, actually. So he hired me when the creative director was, in fact, away. So there was it, it some was control. A creative, director. creative director was a guy called Bob Hall. Yeah. Um, who ended up being my father-in-law. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I got hired by Mackay King. Um, I got, I really got put in a room and nobody gave me any guidance. And to be honest, I was lost, really mm. lost. Sat in this little room. I think I sat there for a year. I did some nice radio work. I did some print work. I was really, they, they, I don't know why they hired me. So um, who taught you how to do print ads? You just picked it up. I just kind of figured it out. Yeah. Does anybody, you know, nobody teaches you anything much. Well, they do these days. Much. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. they do. Yeah. I'm well, sure they, they do, to. but they yeah. just basically hired me for what I thought was a miracle of a salary and threw me in a room. So I did the best I could, but I was sincerely quite lost. Um, wasn't put off or anything. And you didn't have uh, didn't have an art director to work at with. You were just no. I had art directors occasionally. I was put literally put in a room by myself. It's called my office. Mm. Um, and occasionally I'd get um, connected up. So I remember working with um, Howie Campbell and, oh, God, I'm terrible with names, another dude who was really clever called Peter. This isn't good for your history of advertising. Um, no, that, that, that's okay. Yeah. The, the, the memory uh, is what it is. older senior guys. Oh, it, it also, it's my, I've got one of those brains that if I don't need the information, it'll just be gone. Yeah. I don't know. So I did that for nine months or whatever, a year maybe, and... Then I went overseas and did what all Kiwis do and went to London and yeah. got a job in an advertising agency there. Oh, which one? I seem to be able to get jobs in advertising yeah. reasonably easily. It was a small agency in Charlotte Street. I think it was. Yeah, called Sarchies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was called Sarchies. Um, I did loads of ads for our price records and yeah. I, I did the first series of ads that were. Um, when record companies started to actually properly promote album releases. Yeah. And they made ads. Yeah. And because it was the first time that it so, happened. So what year was this, roughly? Just... In the 80s? Somewhere in the 80s? Yeah, okay. So what? What uh, we can date it by what albums you were doing ads for. I was uh, working, yeah, that's true, yeah. Simple Minds, Thompson uh, Twins, The Arrhythmics. Okay, that, that's, that's, I'm going, uh, yeah, early 80s. Forty-five, um, mid eighties, maybe. New Gold Dream, um, Simple Minds, and what was cool was that uh, because it was a big deal, no one had ever done ads, TV ads for albums before. All the artists were interested, yeah. so I met them all, which I found I was totally fangirled. Uh, so did a lot of that, did a lot of work for the record companies and a lot of work for our price. Learned how to <laughs> learned how to cut up songs. Uh, again, clueless, if I'm honest. Yeah. yeah. But had a great time, loved it, worked there for about, a, I don't know, a year, a year and a half or so. Went travelling, came back. Why did you come back? Came back because my boyfriend wanted to come back. I didn't yeah. want to come back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I did come he back. He was a Kiwi. He, he was did. a Kiwi. Yeah. yeah, ended up being the father of my children. Um, we came back. <clears throat> At that time, I'd... Uh, I've been producing my own work in London, so I, and I liked it. I quite liked it. I've got that side to me. I like to be organised. When I came back, for some reason, I got offered a job. I was talking to Jeff Williams, uh, who's a, in the film production side of things, ad production, and yeah. he. I got a job at Cranbrook Films. I decided, oh, maybe I'll be a producer. It uh, was... Um, Peter Avery, Roger, Robert, Roger Tompkins. Roger yep. Tompkins, yeah. Again, I felt I was the baby, really, and... Um, I was a production assistant and I worked like a demon. There was a woman called Kate Aiken, I think her name was. It was hers. It was yeah. her and Rogers. She was she was my first kind of insight into just a fantastic, glamorous woman who was living at large and, so, uh, and uh, a mentor? her own history. I just purely by by association. Mm. Yeah. Terrified of her. Yeah. And there was a young guy called Jason and he had to get food for everyone. Everyone wanted different food all, all every day, and it was terrifying for him. And he had to figure out how to bring back the food mm. so it was still hot. It was like the earliest of Uber Eats. Yeah, 
Um, again, lots of experience. I got a lot of experience on the ground. Realised quite quickly, though, I didn't really want to be the very last person to leave the set, which you are if you work <clears throat> production side. Yeah, it's a long day. Fuck, mate. Like, you know, they, I mean, I loved it, but then I didn't anymore. I realised I needed to create. I didn't want to just produce what other people were creating. Mm. I realised I enjoyed the combination. So I got a job at um, Ogilvy in Mather, it was called then. Who was running it then? I think it was someone like Daryl Hughes. Okay. And the big break for me is that the creative director was a guy called Barry Eady, and he didn't seem to, he didn't seem to, I never felt that I was a girl. Hmm. There was no, there was nothing in my way, and there were very few girls. You're listening to Truth and Soul, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. So I, I guess I should ask, so you never felt that your sex was holding you back within the industry, that, that people had um, old attitudes towards? I um, was acutely aware that I had a different game to play Yeah. from the very beginning. Um, <clears throat> I, was acute, I was very lucky that I did kind of see the whole industry as a little bit of a coliseum, you know, and you had to... You had to play your part. Yeah. But like I said, I was really grateful that with Barry, he didn't, he just gave me great briefs. Yeah. And I did very, very well. And I actually went to go find him uh, recently to thank him because it was really him that set me up. Yeah. And he died of a brain in- hemorrhage or brain, something to do with his brain a few years yeah. ago. I looked up, you know, some old associates in those days. So I think I might have been two or three years into it. Um, and that was when I was first made joint creative director. With? A guy called Rod Schofield. Yeah. So um, I remember vividly thinking, righto, I need to make sure that I leverage this. And I, and again, I look back on it and go, God, where did all that come from? Mm. I walked into um, Barry's office and I said, I'm really excited about this opportunity. I think it's really clear I'm going to be the one that runs the department um, and that you really want me in this role. I'm not going to take it unless you give me the same salary as my associate. Mm. I had no idea what salary he was on. Yeah. But I damn well knew it wasn't going to be the same as mine. Yeah. yeah. And I said, I'll give you 24 hours. Talk to me tomorrow. And the next day I got a $20,000 pay rise. bit late for me to try that one, I think. But <laughs> Well, it just goes to show that he was probably on a minimum of $20,000 more than me. And I, yeah. was, I was doing, you know, I was up there. So, yeah. Uh, every pay rise I've ever had, I've asked for, and yeah. I've had to basically place my case. And I've got it every single time because I've got a good case. Yeah, yeah. You pay for me or you don't pay for me. You've always got to be prepared to leave. That's the only thing. But every time, yeah. you know. Yeah, you can't you can't threaten without the means to, to no, carry and out it's your not threat. Have you ever? And, you know, I'm, it's not a threat either. It's like, look, I'm really aware. Yeah. Often I wasn't. I just had an absolute implicit understanding that, as they still are, women are paid less. Mm. And I wasn't going to be paid less, basically. Why do you think they are paid less? I think they're paid less because the whole uh, of the business world is still run by men, and um, <clears throat> and the whole kind of female female goes home. Female is the one that will head off at certain point to have the children and come back. It's, yeah. And they don't stick up for themselves as much. Well, historically, they haven't. So, do you think uh, it's a very insidious the uh, sexism? It's very insidious. There's never one thing you can put your finger on. That's what's clever about it, and that's what makes it so very sustainable still in 2019. Well, I presume it's not an, an actual conspiracy. It's just the way things happen. Mm. It's implicit. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's just a part of it. It's just a part of the fabric of business. So, if if men are in charge, they pay women less. If women are in charge. Does that equal out? I've got no idea. I don't know the stats. Yeah. But I would imagine, um, I would imagine there would be less, um, it would be less casual. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So from. So got uh, the big pay rise and took the job on. Got the pay rise, top of the world. Uh, Ogilvy were a pretty big player in those days. Yeah. It was one of the agencies. Yeah. Yeah. It was totally one of the agencies. Based um, in Wellington. Wellington. Oh, I was in Wellington. Wellington. Right, I was still sorry. in Wellington. Wellington yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I worked there for three years. Again, I'm not. 
and I have no interest in dates. So I think I was there about two or three years, maybe three. And, uh, and in those days, uh, Wellington was the centre of centre. advertising. Yeah, it yeah. really was. And I, you know, um, Mackay King was the absolute epicentre in those mm. days. It sold out to Saatchi, which set Saatchi up in New Zealand. And um, so that was a great agency for me to be at, even though I felt reasonably lost in it. I was aware of the people. There was a guy called Barry Manley who was the ultimate gentleman. Um, you know, they were all they were all there. Um, uh, so, so people like uh, Kim and um, Peter Cullinane yeah. and so they were Howard. all. My next job was in fact at Saatchi, so I went from Ogilvy into Saatchi, and right. I was hired by Kim. Yeah. And they were all there. Was Len Cheeseman there then, or he no. came in later? No, he came just after where I was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I got a maybe three years into Ogilvy. And to be honest, I just had no mentors. I knew that I knew that it wasn't good that I was someone in my 20s running a department. I knew yeah. that I needed to work for people way cleverer than me. Yeah. I knew that I needed to be challenged and inspired. And um, <clears throat> at that time as well, I decided with Ogilvy I was going to go to work in Hong Kong. I was going to go and do that thing. Mm. Um, they sent me over to Hong Kong. I'd even bought a house so that I could rent it out. And um, I went to Hong Kong and I met this atrocious Ogilvy creative director at the time who told me that there was no such thing as a new idea and um, that he used these award books because they were all mm. books, you know, annuals, and and um, he used them the way doctors used encyclopedias to to figure out how what the diagnosis was. And he didn't want to waste time with people thinking that they could reinvent things. And I thought, this isn't going to work because I was still that very young creative guy. So, so you'd gone there to live and work? I'd gone and, there to yeah. interview and have a look at it. And right. my plan was to go there. And then and I came back and thought, oh, actually, I don't want to do this. Had you been to Hong Kong before? I'd been to Hong Kong once before. Yeah, yeah. staying yeah. So I liked I liked. I really liked it. I, thought, I thought it would be the coolest thing in the world, you know. Yeah. Um, who, do you know who that creative director was? Or no idea. Did, yeah. yeah, I'm not. I'm not a very good subject, am I? No, well, no, that, that, that's fine. <laughs> it's for your don't, don't, don't want to be libelous because I, I could have. Um, we could have edited out, but it would just have been interested because mm -hmm. I'm guessing he was no from idea. London. Uh, I think he could have. He was either British or South African. Yeah, but he tried to crush my spirit. Yeah, wasn't the first person to try and do that, but he certainly tried. And yeah, I went. I, be, I, came I built back. a career on it, but yeah. <laughs> came back and. Um, Came back and thought, right, i got to go. So I went to Saatchi. I was hired by Kim. Um, it was <clears throat> it was the massive days of Saatchi where yeah. they made Accentuate the Positive TVCs and had the geese flying in yeah. formation. And uh, it was a very interesting experience for me. It was... Um, Sorry, for those of you, uh, you who were not in the industry at that time, we'd, I'm, I'm not sure. We, we have one listener. I'm not sure who it is yet. But... <laughs> Uh, Sarches were fa I came to New Zealand 20 years ago and Sarches were famous then for having run an ad for themselves yeah, on, on the TV. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a remarkable time. And the people I learned the most from, in fact, were people like Peter Cullinane. Yeah. Um, I learned an absolute tenacity. Like they would. We would pitch a piece of business and we might not win it, but he'd get it. He'd mm. get it 18 months later. He wasn't a man that gave up. Well, um, uh, was that uh, uh, obviously um, hard work and persistence, but I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know Peter, but I'm guessing charm came oh, into that as well? He, he was a very interesting man. He was charming, but not in a standard ad man charming mm. way. He was, a, he was just a brilliant man, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, massive respect, absolutely massive respect. Like I would say my first mentor was Barry Eady, not realising yeah. I was a chick. Yeah. I definitely felt uh, there were three of us in the, three females in the creative department at Saatchi at one point. Um, we actually, this is a side story, but it's a funny one. When Saatchi Auckland opened, we had formed a band, the three girls at Saatchi, we'd formed a band, we could sing, two of us could sing. The band was called The Standing Ovulations, Okay. Which yeah. was funny. Mm. Um, and we were Saatchi Auckland's present. So we were flown up. So everyone, pretty much everyone from Wellington went up to Saatchi Auckland and, you know, it was opening at the Strand. And there was a, I was freaking out. We arrive. It's down in the giant atrium. There's a big band. Yeah. Big band. And we're singing these three songs. Sometimes it's hard to be a writer. It's my concept and I'll cry if I want to. So we yeah. rewrote it all. We had the dance moves. We had this costume designer 
do all these plastic outfits for us where our ovaries were on the outside. I think mine was stuffed with money or maybe Barbie clothes or something. Yeah. Very, very funny. Yeah, so we were the opening act for uh, Saatchi Auckland. It doesn't, the standing doesn't happen. ovulations. It doesn't happen these days. No, you don't, no, you no don't money. Have singing groups flown up from Wellington. Not to really. Open. Three girl creatives, yeah. So who was running Saatchi's Auckland then? Who, who, who was like the first yeah, well, CEO? The, um, ECD. I don't know who the. Roy Mears, I think, was the. Yeah. Was in the house. Yeah. That's pre Kevin Roberts? Yes. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, I. And you can see this by this theme of the way I talk. I remember events, I remember feelings, I remember occasions. I kind of sailed, I just sailed through. Hmm. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't connect particularly with, you know, um, some of the, some of the dramas and comings and goings and. So you, you never had a plan as such. I just, just really wanted to do great work and have a great time. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to do great work, have a great time. And kind of respect. And be paid as much as the men. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What an unusual thought. Yeah. An unusual thought to be paid as much as the men. Um, to, and again, that wasn't my drive. It was just about fairness. I'm, it was just about fairness. Yeah. I'm doing a great job. <laughs> I'm doing everything you need me to do. The clients have always loved me. Yeah. I've actually, to be honest, I've always felt that I'm really a strategist. You know, that war, and I'm, I now, now that's pretty much what I do all the time. I was a strategist who had a coat on, which was multicolored. It's mm. called a creative coat. But really, I was really very, very comfortable with my clients talking about their business. That made me an anomaly because, um, you know, as a creative, you're supposed to be in charge of the creative. And there, I found the industry desperately them and us. I didn't I never actually understood that there was a thing called a creative department because it seemed to me that a department of creativity meant that other people couldn't be creative. <laughs> um I didn't understand the department of creativity. I was very happy to be in it because it was the coolest department, but I didn't understand why it wasn't a group effort. I I really worked well with uh, suits who wanted to g write great briefs. I did a lot yeah. of work when I was a creative director getting the account people to write great briefs and I really celebrated that as the first stage of the creative process. For me, it was always about the freedom of a tightly defined brief. Thank you, David Ogilvy. Loved all of that. Loved my clients. Loved actually spending time with them talking about their business. I think that that's probably more common now, but it certainly wasn't then. You were very much put in your box and your box was a coloured one and you were in the creative department. And I, lo I loved my clients, really loved them. Yeah, I mean, as a, a junior in London in the 90s, um, Mike Cousins, who was the, the ECD then, probably just creative director, but he would you weren't allowed to go and see the clients. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. you had to hand your, hand your work to the suits and they went off to see the client and you should be getting on with yeah. doing more work, not worrying about selling it. And the suits were going to sell it, so it didn't matter. Yeah, my issue with that was that often the suits didn't sell it. We don't yeah. work whether that that yeah. was their fault or whether it was the work's like fault or could. the client's fault, mm. but they, they didn't often do it. And I always thought that the best, generally, uh, if if you're if you're a you know, washed, um, creative and you know um, reasonably erudite, erudite, worldly knew your stuff, you could have a conversation, you would ha have the best chance of selling it just mm -hmm. because you knew the work mm. backwards. And the best creative people are incredibly strategic. They actually don't just have ideas for the sake of it. They are connected to what it is that we're trying to help sell. Yeah. So, And, and actually, that uh, the standing ovulations, the song, It's My Concept and I'll Cry If I Want To, was because Saatchi was going through a phase where we weren't allowed out of the creative department. Yeah. It was exactly that. We weren't allowed to present our own ideas. And if I'm if I'm ten things, one of them is persuasive. Yes. So I found that very, very difficult to not be able to represent my own ideas. And not just that, but work with the client on the spot if there was something that was sticky for them. I that was how I could get just about anything sold was listening. I've always been really good at listening to my clients. Yeah. And then I can interpret what it is. Doesn't necessarily if they say make it bigger, it doesn't mean that. It might mean I want a sense of X, Y, Z. So I was always very good at listening and interpreting what clients meant, not necessarily what they said. No, that, that's that's very true, Jill. I think that that um, when you get email feedback, it, it rarely does it actually address what what the issue is, no, and, and talk it takes to a, 
it takes a, yeah. a conversation to get to the bottom of yeah. what's going on. And I've also always had uh, uh, an idea, which is that, that really ideas kind of belong to God and you just have to have another one if you can't get that one through. So I've never, I've worked really hard not to be too kind of, you know, devastated when yeah. ideas don't go because, you know, it's absolutely true when I ran creative departments, I was very, very aware that eight out of ten creatives when they come into me, they weren't saying, what do you think of my ideas? They were saying, what do you think of me? It's a very personal process, this creativity. Yes. So, yeah, so I was really aware, I was really aware of that. I worked very hard with my teams to... You know, I, I worked hard as a creative director. I really enjoyed growing people, inspiring them, helping them see the wood from the trees, <clears throat> blah, blah, blah. And, and so from Saatchi's Wellington, you went to? Saatchi Wellington really was the it was a big experience for me. Sort of uh, I was exhausted by the end of it. I don't know if I was actually, I don't know if I was exhausted more than quite cynical. Hmm. Um I'd done some cool things there. Like I, I wrote, um, I'm in my 20s still, I wrote the Treaty of Waitangi campaign. Um, I hadn't read the Treaty of Waitangi. Most New Zealanders hadn't read the Treaty of Waitangi. I can't believe they gave it to me. I don't know, this white girl from Invercargill. Hmm. Um, but I, it was the beginning of me really loving what I did because I dove into it. I learned a lot about um, the treaty and our history and what a red-hot wound it was for so many people. And it was very research-led. There was a woman called Louise Gregg who was the first experience I had at an incredible researcher. Not like, hey, let me tell you what you already know, but here are some really profound insights that you can use. So that was the first time that I really felt like I was earning, learning what it was that was unique about my personal talent which wasn't actually, what a crazy idea, who thought of that? It was listening deeply and writing something which had enormous integrity for the task that that was required. So I loved um, Saatchi from that point of view. I got to work on helping kids stay in school. There was safe sex campaigns. There was the Treaty of Waitangi, which I loved. So it was a lot of public purpose stuff because it was Wellington. I love doing that, that the research. You get a new brief and something that you don't know about, the research about it. That is almost my favourite mm. favorite stage because you're educating yourself on something that you didn't yeah. know about. Yeah. yeah. Another a- area of the supermarket or another area of the national consciousness. Yeah, but- yeah. Yeah, and I feel I'm really grateful, in fact, that my tra- my advertising trajectory was very – I never really did FCM- FCMCG. I was always like – You missed out. Changing minds, you know, yeah. changing minds, changing behaviours, deep, deep things. Like I – with the Treaty of Waitangi, we shot this ad with a, with a young white boy and a young brown boy. Lee Tamahori shot it for me. We shot it on – a beach in Gisborne, which was hugely important to Māori Dim. Um, we, I used Delvanius Prime, who I knew was this musician who would do an incredible job. I met Fina Cooper, who, and she was one of my voiceovers, which was amazing. Fina Cooper's like, you know, the, the mother of the nation. Mm. Um, it, was, it was amazing. And because I'd done everything really ethically and correctly and from a deep, authentic place myself, there was no controversy. It was very... It was a beautiful campaign, and North and South contacted me about two years ago because they had tracked down the the brown boy and the white boy, mm. and now they're adults, and they, you know, followed their trajectory, and there's a whole piece on what happened to those boys, yeah. And I was the young, up-and-coming creative mm. at that time. Um, so, yeah, Saatchi, I decided at the... You know, there was a moment at Saatchi where I thought, oh, I can't do this anymore. And it was uh, it was an agency that really, really believed in itself mm. to the extreme. Like, it was like working for Pepsi Cola or something. I remember we had a big staff meeting and uh, and there was an ad that was played and it was, was for a cell phone. So uh, that was pretty amazing. Mm. <laughs> And it was an average that ad. Was telecom. Yeah, I yeah. It was a sort of a yeah. slice of life ad, you know. Yeah. There's nothing amazing about it. Two people were running. One of them had a cell phone. The phone rang. That was it. And I remember the whole agency was whooping and cheering and punching the ear. Like literally, I remember looking around going, it's, it's not that good. Are you mad? Good. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and um, someone called it. Someone, yeah, it would become a total cult. It was an extreme level of cult. It was also, um, 
it was a massive learning exercise for me in that I I felt very uh, no, I did feel very female. Uh, huge amounts of conversations and the way ideas were formed and in fact chosen were in the bar at night. Mm. Um, that was a very male environment. I certainly didn't feel I could go into that bar at night. I also had no desire to go into that bar at night. It was very male. It was very big, deep, loud voices laughing, um, a lot of shoulders, you know, that turned away from you. I found it very, I found it a very challenging environment. I'm grateful for it, mm. super grateful for it. Like I learned a lot of things, but they weren't necessarily how to make a great ad, ad, ad campaign. Um, that I learned how to tell stories. Well yeah. and truly, emotional stories, which is what I do now for brand. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that went went on there. But it, when when that particular campaign and that meeting, it was called the ultimate penny drop moment. <laughs> and I thought, what? Because she hasn't got a cell phone. I don't. I didn't mm. see it as the ultimate penny drop moment. It was an absolute cult, and I wasn't in the cult. Basically, I was on the outside of the cult, looking in, going. Do they, this is like crazy. This is not a cure for cancer. Yeah, I'm uncomfortable with it. Um, so I, I left. I went to Auckland, and I actually went to Communicado and worked for Neil Roberts. So we're deviating over into television land. Neil Roberts was the first guy who, he kind of made the very very early reality TV. He he did lots of TV series, and I can't remember any of them, of course. Mm. Um, and he wanted a little advertising trophy. That's what he wanted. So Communicado was an agency. Or no, was it, it was a production, production company, but it was a TV production company. They made a yeah. lot of TV. Mm. They made TV, and so my idea was I was going to pivot into TV. Mm. So they hired me at the time. There was the first infomercials were starting to happen. Wonderful days. Wonderful days of the infomercial. But what I what I did respect about what Communicado was doing was essentially they were making they would go in and sweep into ANZ or, you know, some some other one of the really big clients and they would say it's the suffragette year or something something about year of the female. Let's do mm. a whole series and they'd be little. They were actually little programs, so they were like little mini programs brought to you by the ANZ or brought to you by Telecom. Um, so he managed to basically product turn turn these little instead of doing a thirty minute TV show, he was doing a one minute TV show, little story. It wasn't selling anything. It was telling us a beautiful story about our country, our heritage, whatever, and um, and it would be tagged with the client. So it was the beginning of. It was actually very clever in hindsight. Sponsored content. It was or? sponsored content. It was yeah. the first sponsored content that I think and. And I'll bet you he's never been credited with being one of the people who brought sponsored content, the beginning of sponsored content. No, but that I, was my job. I wasn't aware, uh, um, aware of that, Joel. I just mentioned here that for um, for a younger listener, mm -hmm. that Saatchi uh, and Saatchi Wellington were a big deal. They mm -hmm, were mm -hmm. they were known. I uh, I was working in London in the nineties, and I remember they would have a list of the top 10 agencies in the world mm. and they were generally uh, British and American, uh, but Sarch's, Sarch's New Zealand... Wellington. Sarch's Wellington, Wellington, yeah. Would, ...would appear in there. And that, that, that was pre-internet days, mm -hmm. so for people to know what work was, was being done because it wasn't generally accepted that everybody entered all their work in, yeah. into yeah. can. It, it would involve a, a bit of um, yeah. searching out. Yeah. I suspect Len Cheeseman, who was there at, at some time, who was ex I'd known from London, he'd been one of the tutors yeah. when I was at college. He was down there, and I, I, he was probably keeping all his mates in London um, well informed of what he was yeah, up to. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a. Um, I feel very. I mean, my whole advertising trajectory. I feel very blessed. I was at Mackay. My first agency mm. was Mackay King. Mm. Ogilvy was one of the very best places you could learn. I learned, mm. and I was given an opportunity. Then Saatchi was, you know, the glory days. It was a cult, yeah. And it, and it certainly, you know, there were some wheels on that track that were quite wobbly, as far as I could see. And I couldn't, I was never going to be able to completely buy into it. I was, I was a girl in one of the offices working hard, you know. I always felt like I had to work epically hard, and I did. Yes, that, and I liked it. I liked it. That's the thing. I have vivid memory of working on the National Bank. Uh, bringing back the black horse. I yeah. was involved with that campaign where it was like Lloyds of London had this black horse in its logo 
we wanted to create this bank that became the thoroughbred. So I worked on that whole, you know, the Black Horse campaign. And there was a uh, chief executive of the National Bank at the time who was singularly the rudest man I've ever presented to. Well, you hadn't um, met me at that point. So, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so I was the girl again. He didn't understand why there would be a girl in his office yeah. unless she was saying, how do you have your coffee? And yeah. I wasn't. Um, I didn't know until afterwards that there was, in fact, a dress code on his whole floor. Women had to wear skirts and they had to be of a certain length. And, yeah, like it was pretty remarkable mm. if you look back on it. Um, I didn't know any of that. I was, you know, full fashionista. Um, so I like the fact that – so I came down uh, in, in 2000 from the UK and – I signed up with the National Bank. Must have been your your advertising. Yeah. Did it. But I saw the the black horse everywhere, and I went, "Oh, crikey!" I didn't realise that that Lloyd's mm. of London had a bank in New Zealand. Uh, but I also heard that uh, from Kiwis who'd go up to London and they go everywhere and they go, "Wow, they've got the the New Zealand bank is up in London." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, it was a nice. I mean, I was on the side of that whole thing, but I loved it. But I used to have to present to this dude. And he would um, sit in his swivel chair, and as soon as I started presenting, he would swivel away from me, so he'd have his back to me. And I was mm. showing him boards, because mm. that's what you did. And I would go, would you like me to stop? And he'd go, I can hear you. Mm. So I'd carry on. Nice. Yeah, pretty special dude. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, and he was the CEO, not, not the marketing guy. He was the CEO. Yeah. He was the CEO because it was those were the days, you know. There was the, multi-millions the of dollars being sold. <laughs> yeah, I liked to work Good old days when I you could turn your back on, on advertising people who uh, were presenting. Well, especially yeah. girls, especially girls. He did not know what to do with me. Mm. Didn't have a clue. Yeah, so, so I went to Comunicado for a year. I realised it was the slowest, um, you know, that making uh, television content was, in fact, very slow going. It's yeah. not now. It's very fast, but back yeah. then, it, you know, there was no money. Yeah. It was like you'd get a hundred grand for a, a one-hour episode of something, and I'd think, "Geez, we were getting a hundred grand for thirty seconds. Mm. We were getting a million for thirty seconds sometimes." Mm. So I lasted a year. Um, it was good though. I was super burned out. It it reengaged me with um, what I loved about advertising. I started working for Mojo. Yeah. Um, there's a guy called Pete Fantall there. Yeah. At the time, he was quite well known, and he had gathered together this glorious team of rogues who I basically ended up inheriting and loved them, ended up taking them to my next agency with me. So it was like Luke Noller and um, Mikhail Gurman was my creative partner, who's yeah. now half of Karen Walker. Yeah. Um, Steve Ason was my creative partner yeah. for a while, who's now a world-famous director. Yeah, very good director. Very, Sorry, very, very good, good director. E yep. Yeah, excellent. Ex world extraordinary. Class. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he was my creative partner for quite a while. Um, it was a great crew. Like uh, Steve Susie, who's a director yeah. now. We were basically, uh, it was a, it were, they were the glory days because well, for me, it was like coming home. We were all freaks and nerds, actually. We mm. weren't advertising animals. We were creative animals that happened to find a way to earn good money being creative and telling stories and inventing shit. And so that I found those days really great. So I, I became creative director of that agency and that was the first agency I was properly on leadership teams with. Blah, blah, blah. It's interesting that, um, say, where I, um, when I was a creative director of DDB, the guys from that department have gone on to, you know, lots of them to do really well. But within the industry, whereas that period of time at Mojo, every it, 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 they kind of expanded outwards and did more than just went on to build yeah. great careers in advertising. Yeah, they, they did, were, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, none of us TV were really advertising and... animals. That's why. We yeah. weren't none of us. And uh, you can hear from my story, I was never an advertising animal, really. Yeah. It was never my bag. I just loved telling stories. I loved the creative environment. I loved, I liked the pressure. I liked the kind of, oh, I've got to have 12 ideas overnight. Is mm. this good enough? I'm a very, very driven person. So it was always like, can I do better? Can I do better? Can I do better? Um, but that was a great time because it was – we were all of a similar ilk, you know, we mm. were all going to go on and do other things. Um, and we weren't that bothered with what anyone else was doing, really. We just wanted to do great work. So I loved um, the Mojo era. Um, yeah, I loved it. Uh, it was intense. Again, worked really, really hard. I did a, um, I did a lot of work, again, working, did some work with Carlton and United Breweries. So, again, I would have been the first girl that – I'm sure I was the first girl that was in that Melbourne boardroom who hadn't said, how do you have your coffee, sir? 
Um, they didn't know what to do with a girl, so they took me to the Grand Prix. That's the beginning of my love for motor racing. Um, uh, seriously? Yeah, 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 seriously. Yep, yeah, didn't know what to do with a girl. Mm. But I well, was no, doing seriously, good work. You felt, you, yeah, you fell in love with. Yeah, yeah, I love motor racing. Um, uh, yeah, I really. I, I I look back and I go for that whole career of mine in advertising, traditional marketplace. I felt like I was wading through mud. Mm. I felt like I was wading through mud. Everything was kind of hard. I knew that I had great connections with my clients, that I was doing great work and telling good stories, but I wasn't um, on the same, you know, I wasn't completely driven by awards. I didn't really care if the logo needed to go up a few notches. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it really made any fucking difference, you know. Mm. I had to keep really mum about all of that. I had to almost keep mum about the fact that I was really interested in how the advertising worked. Yeah, Nobody I, much cared back then how the advertising worked. I cared. You have to I loved be my so clients. careful as a, 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 maybe it's a writer thing, I don't know, that to, to when the client goes, oh, it'd be good at, you look at the logo and you go, it's a bit small, isn't it? The client goes, oh, it'd be nice if the logo's a little bit bigger and, you know, the art directors are throwing toys around yeah, and everything. Yeah. And you're going, well, it's got a point. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't really fucking matter and it yeah. really doesn't. Um, yeah, so... Great days, yeah, great days. Interesting projects. So, uh, so did did you uh, uh, start up your own place after Mojo? Or was a uh, no? Then I went to Bates. Bates and became generator. Yeah, yeah. Who who was running that then? I was hired by Terry Kings for the second time. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, they were. Uh, so that was interesting. So there was a, a leadership team there who individually were all brilliant, but we couldn't make it work. Mm. Yeah, it was a very, very uh, challenging time in the in the industry mm. um, with that group of people. Uh, yeah. All right, we'll leave that there. <laughs> um, I brought over quite a few people from Mojo um, and tried to make it work. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff that went on. There's a lot of stuff that went on at Bates. Um we had a great creative department because I'd brought over Steve. I'd brought Mikhail with me. Mm. I had Steve Asen and Steve Susie. Mm. Um, Mikhail was with me. Had a, I, I brought people, a couple of females in. There was this moment, actually. It, it was, uh, you know, advertising. I don't know if they still do. They used to do this big art auction where, of course, we're all creatives. and Not, not for a while. Of, a lot of the art. You know, you remember it. Yeah. The, um, there was a big art auction. So I was at Bates at that point. And... Um, I was downstairs. There wasn't so much, you know. I had a my my name had quite a quite a cachet, but no one particularly knew what I looked like because I mm. wasn't one of those girls about town mm. at all. And I was standing in the back of the auction, and this young female came up to me and she said, "Hi, my name's whatever it was." And mm. she said, "Did I work in advertising?" And I said, "Yes." And she said, "Oh, that's so great because there's hardly any female creatives, senior female creatives." And I said, "No, no, there isn't." And she said, "Well, there's that Jill Brinston." And I thought, she doesn't have a fucking clue I'm Jill Brinston. And I mm. went, yeah. And she's she went, great. She, no, she said apparently she's a real bitch. <laughs> apparently she's incredibly, she's a ball breaker. She's really hard on women. Like it was such an eye-opener for me that that somehow this young woman so what, what, was having a go at the one female that had opened all the fucking doors for her. No idea. And I said, oh, she must be, she must be pretty good at what she does. And um, to have, you know, to have achieved what she has. And she, oh, don't get me wrong. No, I've heard she's incredible, but, you know, a ball breaker. That was the phrase. And I went, oh, well, you know, probably we, we, have, to, we have to look after our own and support each other. I wish you all the best. And I left and I thought, fuck, I really hope she sees a photo of me in the next six weeks because she's going to. Well, yeah. I, I wonder if she'll ever get around to listening to this and go, oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus I, Christ. I, I didn't yeah. realise that. I mean, to some degree, I, I, that was the kind of vibe. You were a girl. Mm. It was, it's it right to the end. It was like the 70s poster. He's assertive. She's aggressive, you know? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You had to be, uh, you know, I'm a good salesperson. You had to be incredibly good. I learned, here's what I learned, and I give this to any female, particularly who's listening to this, eventually, when you've got your big re listenership. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, when we're up to two listeners. Yeah, yeah. and one of them's a chick. Yeah. Um, I did this massive pivot when I shifted from Saatchi to Mojo. At Saatchi, I just kept thinking, this is really not fair. I'm having great ideas. I'm working really hard at Mojo, but I never got to be heard. You know, it was yep. always that teams were all being pitched against each other. I'd have a bit of an idea and they'd grab that bit and they'd put it in with another team. 
I just constantly felt, you know, really out of sorts and, and felt like it was really a difficult environment and certainly not at all conducive for me to blossom. I went to Mojo and I went, you know what? It isn't fair, Jill. So nothing's fair. It's not fair in kindergarten. Mm. You know, you see you know, you see people pushing each other over in kindy and grabbing what they want. And I'm not saying that that's what advertising was, but there was an aspect of that. Yeah, for and sure. And so I changed my game. And I thought, you know what, I can still do it authentically. I can still be me. I can still have integrity. What I started to do was what I saw the boys at Saatchi do very well, pre-seed ideas, get the key influencer who, you know, might have been, in fact, the TV producer or the senior account director and say, I want to bounce some thoughts off you. Hmm. Can I, can I, I've got this idea or I've got this idea. Which one do you think? So that I became very, very good at influencing the influencers, pre-seeding ideas, um, I'm playing the game, but within my own dynamic, um, and that's when I took off. So that's really, Mojo was when I absolutely took off and started flying, it felt like to me. Yeah, I, I suddenly, I, I didn't feel those constraints. The mud wasn't quite so, the mud wasn't quite so thick that I was wading through every day. Mm. It felt like I could run. Uh, it was, a, you know, there were a lot a lot of quite, Sandy Bergen was a, a lead account director at the time. She's gone on to do great stuff in the leadership space. Yeah. You know, we were doing great work. It was a lot of fun. Uh, uh, yeah, Sandy is, as we speak, as you can see, running one of her courses on uh, Great Barrier Island. Hmm. Um, well, she's got a place, yeah. So there was great people. There was a guy called Rick Slovit. Um, he was an American guy. He came up from Chiat Day. Yeah. Um, so, um. Question, why aren't there many um, female creatives? It's probably three, four to one. Yeah. Why do you think that is? What are the numbers um, What are the numbers at award school and is, it, is, well, that, is that it? That, are they not coming that is in a big or question. are they falling out? I, I'd have to talk to Kate at, um, at uh, Media Design School. Yeah. Because I would imagine that she does what she can to to mm. equalise mm. to, to get it more fifty. Yeah, look, I think um, I think it's gladiatorial. I don't know if it still is, but it was very gladiatorial when I was in advertising. It was, you know, we were, yeah, we were all in there together, but you needed your ideas to get through. And yeah. I was often in creative departments where it was like, right, three teams are getting this. You're pitching against each other. There was a lot of that. So it had a real gladiatorial quality to it. Um, you had to be very resilient. You had to play the game. Um, as a female, you were. Um, you were definitely put over into the girl products in, in, a, in a heartbeat. You had to stick up for yourself. I had to stick up for myself relentlessly. I was from Invercargill, and we, we needed to stick up for ourselves anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I always had that, and I never resented it, to be honest. I just thought, well, I've got to stick up for myself here. It but was it, kind of a part of the game, which is why I was fine, I think. But I think for a lot of women, they would possibly look at it and go, this is bullshit. Yeah, it's, it, it is gladiatorial. There is, if you're, um, say, at one of the bigger agencies, they might have three uh, intern teams there. Mm. And a brief, and it would be whoever yeah. cracks that brief has a job. The other two don't get it. Have yeah, have to go. I yeah. remember you know, I used to work with um, Mike O'Sullivan in London, and I remember after we'd been there, probably been there, I don't know, a year, year and a half, uh, another team came in, and we both got briefed on a uh, on a beer, and it was more or less unspoken that uh, if we didn't uh, crack the brief, if you know, our work didn't win out, that we would be fired. Mm. Yeah, and that, yeah. Uh, that's. That was that was it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the way the the mm. industry worked. And yeah, which is why I use that word, you know. And if you think about gladiators, you think about the Roman days. Yeah. There weren't that many chicks in those arenas. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> there weren't very many girls. No, it's, a few lionesses, uh, maybe. But yeah, 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 exactly. So I, 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 by the end, I absolutely. I mean, about halfway through, I kind of got my head around it and um, and felt like I had found a way to. I. To be clever enough and to be smart enough and to be savvy enough to have my own role in the in the arena. Yeah, but I think your question about why aren't there more women, <clears throat> I, I would imagine it's still quite gladiatorial. 
And I think yep. there would be a lot of women who would just go, this is not the way I want to spend my life. Yes. Yeah, there's got to be a kinder way to use my creativity. You're listening to Truth and Soul, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. In London, you would uh, be on placement, do, do, the, mm. do the placement rounds, and if you were lucky, that went on for a few months. Mm -hmm. If you were unlucky, that could go on for years, mm. three years. Yeah. A and the word was, and during that time, as a bloke, you were um, or uh, sleeping on people's floors, eating beans on toast, scrounging beer at the agency fridge. Mm -hmm. You had you had no money. You were, and I've heard it said that blokes were prepared to do that, and girls go, "Now nah, this is mm. this is not on." Yeah, yeah, maybe I can. Yeah, I can speak ob observationally, really. Yeah. Yeah. So mm, it was after Bates that I went. I'm out. I'm yeah. out. I want to start. Uh, I, I didn't want to start an ad agency. I didn't. I wanted to. I, what I was really witnessing was uh, agencies trying to say, you need to be on TV and then we'll do this and then we'll do that. And and I was seeing clients that weren't campaign ready. Yeah. So I would do the beautiful advertising campaign for something that was essentially an invented idea. It didn't work because mm. it was an invented idea. <laughs> and uh, And I would think, why why am I I'm doing work that I know isn't going to work the organization needs retuning the sales force don't know what they're doing no one's being briefed about what we're trying to achieve leadership isn't involved with it yeah. so I've that was my early era of the work that I do now which is actually behavioral brand is behavioral advertising might not be but brand mm. is behavioral if your culture isn't reflecting what you're saying you are you're not so I could see a lot of that happening. And so when I started Radiation, <clears throat> I really wanted, uh, I didn't, was, I was think I was the first to actually say no specialists on staff. I wasn't going to have any creative people. They would all be hired uh, as, as would cultural experts, yeah. depending on the task. I, uh, my last conversation in advertising, which was my, my crowning glory to some degree, was I went into who was the chief executive of it at that time, and I was see there was some smart people there. Sandy Callister, who's brilliant, was the strategic planner. There's a guy called Paul Sherman, who's now in the UK. He's a planner. He was the media director. Michael Prentice, who's amazing. We were all individually yeah. amazing, but we couldn't make it work. I went into the CEO at the time, who was called Noel Brown, and I said, Noel, I want to have a word. I'm a very clean person. I said, I want to – there's one client you're going to need to – really circle because I have a relationship with her which isn't just creative. She she really regards me strategically. It was the Caltex brand. Um, we'd just done three years of this, my favourite campaign, which was the Caltex Mystery Motorist where we dressed this dude up and he went into all the different counties all over the country. Funny. Um, mm. And he took a drag on his cigarette. We were out on the balcony. We were possibly even in his office. You probably honest. didn't have to be on a balcony. No, I think he might have no. even been in his office. And he looked at me and he said once again, he was an Australian guy, once again, Jill Brinsden, you overvalue your importance to this agency. It was the last thing he said to me. So I am very clean. I said, well, look, I just wanted to give you that opportunity. Uh, she's not going to be happy about my departure and I don't see any of the other people stepping up to play the role I played. So I wish you all the best. I rang the client. So had you you'd been resigning? I'd resigned already. Yeah, yeah and I was yeah. literally trying to keep a very clean, you know, yeah. clean slate. Um, that's the girl I am. Mm. And um, anyway, I rang the client and I said, "Look, I just want you to know that I've tried. I didn't pitch at all for the business. I said, I just want you to know I've um, spoken to Noel and said da 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 da, and she just went, did he? Did he say that? And six weeks later, she gave me the business. So that was the beginning of what radiation was, which was mm. this beautiful calling card um, for me to be able to say that I'm continuing to work strategically and creatively on Caltech. So I had six months of that before it was um, globalised. So it went into the YNR network. And then she went up to Singapore and I, she made... YNR used radiation as her creative department. So at that point, I was still doing some advertising while I was building up the more brand work because it was a very new concept, the idea of brand being a storytelling exercise. It's only just coming into its play so, now, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, so I was, again, I was a very early um, player there. 
Um, and then she went up to the States and I went up to the States with her. So that was when radiation was properly appointed. And that's when I really genuinely began to separate myself off. So I was doing huge amounts of cultural work with her teams. We did a massive, the last big campaign radiation ever did was this glorious thing to launch a, a um, truck motor oil, 15W30 into... The tug of war. The tug of war. Because I, I, I was going to ask you, because I, I was looking at it on YouTube, and I'm going, hang on, this is this is a truck oil for the States that is... Because I didn't know the backstory about Caltex, but now yeah. it's starting to make yeah, sense. So yeah, so I travelled with her. Um, and to be honest, it was a remarkable piece of business for about 15 years, and I didn't just end up working with her. We ended up working across seven or eight different clients, and now one of those clients from the, the era of Chevron, so I was working up in Chevron, yeah. I really cut my teeth on how to get get brilliant work out of people, did a lot of work with them culturally. So the mystery, that, that project, that whole truck versus tug, who will win in the ultimate, who will win in the mm. ultimate tug of war? came from massive amounts of insight watching truckers talk about their lives all over. I think they flew me to Houston and Arizona and all sorts of Sacramento listening to truckers. And then we got full permission to not do any advertising because nobody believes it. So we created this Mythbusters style, you know, thing. I worked with Luke Nola. We came up with, I think, 17 different Mythbusters events. They yeah. chose the tug of war and we literally shot it. And, we, and it was for real. We was shot that it Simon twice. Mark Brown? Yeah, I took yeah. Simon up with me. Yeah. I actually, Amber Easby, who's probably the best human being I've ever worked with, I hired her as my producer. Yeah. Uh, we hooked into a production company up in the States. Um, she was the genius. I needed somebody who was a fantastic barker, <laughs> which is Simon. Yeah. Uh, so we had Simon and we had an editor. Luke was up there. I was up there. I think there were four or five of us that travelled up, but there was a crew of about fifty that we hooked into. It it looked dangerous. Yeah. It, yeah. it looked like well, what, what it was the real deal. So I know you had the ex- uh, the explosive. Yeah, we on, did. Uh, we did. So so uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's um uh, it's on a pier, very large truck and a tugboat, and and there's a there's um. A rope between them, and yeah. you're going. Well, if the tug does win, then this is a very large truck with a bloke inside. It wasn't wearing a life jacket. <laughs> it ends up in the yeah. up in the water, and if and if yeah. the truck wins, then the the tug gets yeah smashed was, into the pier. It was a stunning project because uh, we got to. So we really worked. It was a proper piece of content. We seeded it in all the trucking blogs to start with. So we seeded who would win. If, imagine if mm. there was a imagine if there was a tug of war between a truck and a like a, this is an eighteen wheel, you know, yeah. massive truck and a. Yeah, it wasn't a Ute. No, uh, it was. They were big, big things. We were on LA Wharf. Mm. We had the LAPD there because they were worried the Wharf police were there. They were worried about the Wharf coming down. Yeah. Although, of course, everything was you know Chevron's safety culture was second to none. So we kind of knew what was going to happen, but still there was. There's a lot of old Hollywood guys as well who'd just come off films who were working on it. And yeah. because it involved this sort of storyline it did, it was very, yeah, it was very sticky. Everyone wanted a part of it. And I think it's got, what is it, 1.7 unique million views now? Yep. 1.7 million views. So, yeah, we seeded it. We got the truckers all talking about it. We got it on we got it on, you know, news shows in the morning. Then wouldn't you know it, Chevron actually hosts this thing. It was yeah. beautiful. Then we did a whole lot of digital work, which was shifting it over into what kind of driver are you? Are you a heavy-duty driver or are you a severe-duty driver? Digital quizzes and people were checking, you know, so the truckers are all checking. Because we essentially created a new category of driving, which is the severe-duty, not heavy-duty, not heavy-duty. Severe duty is uh, actually sounds like it's very dramatic, like it's ice road truckers, like yeah. my my star. It's not. It's actually stopping and starting constantly because that whole industry has shifted and the way engines uh, work, uh, you know, they, they're put under a lot more stress because there's so much more stopping and starting, shorter trips, bigger hauls, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, so that that really, I, I that was for radiation, that were glory days of... Um, Decent sized budgets, you know, nine cameras. We shot it twice. Like it was, it was amazing. Mm. It was an incredible experience. The whole thing and very um, a beautiful rounding out for my advertising career because it was very content led, which I believe in a lot more than doing making up an ad, 
for the sake of it. So I loved the fact that it was very real, that the truckers loved it, that it was a real story. It was exciting. It was very Mythbusters. And there was a moment in the room where one of the guys, all Americans, there's about mm-hmm. 30 people in the room for the pre-prod, said, how does a little Kiwi company get a job like this? Everyone in America would kill for a job like this. Who mm. brought this into town? Mm. And then every face turned and looked at the little redhead in the corner, <laughs> which oh, I boys. loved. Yeah. yeah, hi, boys. Yeah, yeah. Well, that seems like a good note on which to end. Yeah. Jill, uh, uh, thank you so much for uh, coming in. Um, My pleasure. And, and sharing some trips down memory lane and mm. bringing it up to date with, well, more or less up to date with a with a Caltech story. Yeah. Uh, and uh, best of luck to you for whatever projects and Thank you. businesses we... Tricky. Tricky is the next uh, big project, which is kicking off right now. Yeah. So Tricky and... Radiation, Radiation. is, is yeah. us. I'm, I'm in the process of dissolving a lot of the work into Tricky. I don't want to do any... I'm basically at the point where I don't want to do advertising output anymore. I want yeah. to affect change for businesses. So I'm, I'm doing a huge amount of... All the brand we develop is storytelling. Um, I'm working very much at the top of organisations, um, writing stories, writing full architecture, vision, mission, what's the purpose of the organisation, the cultural nuance. I do a lot of values work that connects how the organisation behaves with actually how they say they behave. So there's authenticity there. I get I get frustrated by clients who uh, uh, over the years have uh, come to you and say that... Um, they have they have an issue in that people don't think that they're that they're modern and forward thinking enough. So can you do an ad to make them out to be modern yeah. and forward thinking? Yeah. And you go kind of go well, why don't you change your business to be yeah, exactly. r- rather than just pretending? Simple. That's why I'm. That's where I am. So yeah. the work that I'm doing is I just love it because I'm you know I, I I now have a process which we've developed and the Chevron work has helped me with that, which is full values development, which involves the staff so they feel engaged. We get it all the way down to behavioural codes, you know, if this is our value, what does it mean we will do, what does it mean we won't do? So that goes into KPIs. So then when it's time for the ad agency to be briefed, if they ever do actually need that kind of stuff, there's there's an integrity about the story they're telling. I really, really like the work. I've got two design partners, so all the work we, you know, then we'll do logo identity full website output, um, all of the, you know, it's a very designed approach. Yeah. But i got to go. Up, upstream. Thank you, Jill. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, babe. You've been listening to Truth and Soul, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. Okay. List of credits. Thank you very much um, to this week's guest, whoever he, she, or it might be. Uh, if you liked it, uh, drop us a line, uh, paul at truthandsoul.co.nz. Thank you very much to everyone at Franklin Road, uh, Jonathan Cole, uh, the Wastrel Shane, Vanessa and Gracie, uh, Otis who did the logo, and uh, Matt Stalker who's going to play us out. Thank you.
understand our father's fascination with dendrology. The family tree is losing its leaves. Please forgive my trembling hands, crudely silhouetted by the flickering spires of candlelight. While the wicked sleep sound, I want the anxious toss and turn. Thoughts come not as single spies, but in battalions. While the wicked sleep sound, I want the anxious toss and turn.